Have you ever gotten someone's name wrong? Uh, I, I do this kind of thing all the time. Half of you uh, know that I have because I've done it to you. Uh, sorry about that. The, the other half will experience this after the service, so let me just go ahead and apologize in advance. Uh, usually, you know, when we uh, wrongly identify someone, we get their name wrong. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, sometimes a, a job interview is kind of on the line, but normally the stakes are really not even that high, are they? Um, wrongly identifying someone no normally doesn't cost us a whole lot. We're just kind of left a little embarrassed. Uh, but there is one person in the world whose identity we must get right, or it will cost us everything. If we misunderstand who Jesus is, it will cost us everything. And the author of the Gospel of Luke does not want us to misunderstand or wrongly identify who Jesus is, so he explicitly tells us who he is. Luke tells us that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of the living God, and that properly identifying Jesus means taking up our cross daily and following him. And this is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 36. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to open your Bibles and turn there to Luke chapter 9. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning, I believe, on page 866. 866. And while you're turning there, please allow me just to offer a little bit of background on our study of Luke's gospel this morning. Luke, he is writing to announce the good news that the Savior of the world has arrived. The world was in need of a Savior because of man's rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden. When Adam, the, the, the representative head of humanity, sinned against God, all mankind descending from him lost communion with God and came under his just judgment. But God, because he is rich in mercy, planned and promised to send a Savior his chosen one, his son, to deliver his people out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation. Luke, he is trying to persuade his readers, he's trying to persuade us that these promises have come true in Jesus Christ. And throughout Luke's gospel, we have learned that Jesus is our king, he's our savior and teacher. Jesus is God's favored and faithful son. Jesus is the Lord who calls, forgives, and communes with sinners. Jesus is a prophet, a physician, and a preacher of the kingdom. And the last time we studied Luke's gospel together, we were confronted with Jesus' divinity as he displayed his power and authority over disasters, demons, disease, and death. And all of those things we observe about Jesus should tell us something about who he is. And if there's one thing that the Gospel of Luke is concerned about, it's the concern about the question of Jesus' identity. Who is this man who can heal, who can preach with power and authority? Who is this man who can silence demons and raise the dead? Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 36 answers these questions in three ways. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of Man. And the Son of God. And we'll consider this in three sections this morning. We'll first consider the question, who is Jesus? 
That's verses 1 to 17 in Luke 9. Next, we'll consider that he is the Christ, verses 18 to 27. And then finally, we'll consider that Jesus is the Son of God, verses 28 through 36. Let's begin with Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 17, where we see the question about Jesus' identity raised. Who is Jesus? That's the question that Herod asks. Let's read Luke 9, verses 1 to 17. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bread, no, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and depart from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have... No more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them sit, all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now in these 17 verses, there are three kind of major scenes. First, in verses 1 through 6, Jesus, he sends his disciples out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. Then in verses 7 through 9, we have this kind of strange interlude with Herod, John the Baptist, and Elijah. And then the third scene picks back up in verse 10 where the disciples return to Jesus and report to him all that they had done. And, and without skipping a beat, Luke, he ties that conversation right into Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Why are these kind of apparently disparate scenes tied together in Luke's mind? What is he trying to communicate through them? Well, here's my answer. These Three scenes are all a part of Luke's continuing narrative of revealing Jesus' identity to us. In the previous chapter, in chapter 8, if you kind of just scan your eyes back there for a minute, you see Luke, he raised the question of Jesus' identity in verse 25. Jesus, he calmed the storm, and the disciples marveled at one another, saying, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? 
That question has kind of a ripple effect throughout the rest of the gospel. That question sends kind of shockwaves throughout the text. And it's the question that should be on our minds. It's the question that's on Herod's mind there in verse 9 of chapter 9. He says, who is this about whom I hear such things? The power and authority of the kingdom, it comes from Jesus. You know, he may distribute his power and authority to his appointed messengers. He does that there in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. But the central focus is not actually on his apostles. It's about him. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, verse 2. Let's recognize that the message that they were sent out to deliver is not about them and what they did, but about Jesus and what God is doing through Jesus. He is establishing his long-awaited kingdom. You'll see there in verse 3, Jesus, he basically instructs his disciples not to take a lot of things along with them on their mission. He prohibits them from doing so. And his prohibitions would not only encourage them to depend upon God to provide, but it would also allow them to move quickly from place to place, which really highlights the urgency of their mission. Jesus' last instructions to his disciples in verse 5 highlights the fact that they may actually face resistance in their mission. It had been the practice of Jews to shake the dust off of their feet when they were leaving Gentile communities. These Jews understood these communities to be opposed to God because they were not living under his covenant rule. These Gentile communities hadn't submitted themselves to the rule of Yahweh. So when Jesus tell his, tells his disciples they're to shake, off, shake the dust off their feet when they are rejected, the same thing is going on. Shaking the dust off was a sign that the, the messengers of Christ would leave that village to its own condemnation. That community or village is rejecting Jesus, his kingdom, his good news, and his claim on their lives. In short, rejecting Jesus' messengers was tantamount to rejecting Jesus. And here we're starting to see that there are only two choices when it comes to identifying Jesus. We can either receive him or we can reject him. There's no middle ground. In receiving him, we receive his kingdom and his blessings. In rejecting him, we stand under the threat of condemnation and judgment of God. And Luke mentions this idea of the kingdom of God without any kind of explanation. He expects us to have something of a grasp of this concept of the kingdom of God from the Old Testament. This concept is going to come into play when we hear the, the revelations concerning Jesus' identity a little later in this chapter. But to put the matter briefly, Jews, Jesus' first century Jewish audience expected God to send his messianic king to establish his messianic kingdom. The first century Jewish audience expected this king to do what God did in the exodus from Egypt. To free the people of God from an oppressive and enslaving nation in order to establish his kingdom of priests and holy nation. And it is with this backdrop of Jesus' authoritative rule and proclamation of the kingdom through his disciples that Luke begins to bring into our field of vision an authoritarian ruler like Pharaoh. Only this time his name is Herod. In verse 8, Herod is perplexed by all that Jesus and his disciples were doing. Perhaps he's even a bit anxious about someone claiming that they're establishing a rival kingdom. Remember, Pharaoh got nervous when the Jews were beginning to multiply, beginning to become so large. Rome does not have rivals. 
This is concerning for Herod. Everyone is trying to figure out who Jesus is. Herod is hearing all kinds of rumors and he's not sure what to believe. Jesus can't be John, Herod thinks. I killed him. I beheaded him. But could he be the second coming of Elijah? That great eschatological prophet prophesied in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 and 4? Who is the one who comes before God's messianic kingdom comes? Could he be that one? Could he be another prophet? A prophet from of old who has been raised from the dead, interestingly there in verse 9. These questions from Herod and others about Jesus' identity should be prompting the same questions for us. Who do we think Jesus is? Have we received him or have we rejected him? Have we received the message that his messengers have brought on his behalf? Have we come to know the blessings of his kingdom and living under his rule? At one level, it's, it's kind of hard to apply these verses to our lives. We need to recognize that something unique is, is going on here. Uh, this is a unique event in redemptive history. Jesus personally, directly, and immediately, without any barriers, divinely commissions 12 men who would be his apostles. Uh, they would be the foundation of the church, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. These men are something we are not. They were eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At another level, uh, these verses are easy to apply to our lives. These men stand as models for us. We too have been commissioned to proclaim the kingdom of God that has come in Jesus Christ. It is clear that the calling to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ extends actually beyond the apostles. You have deacons, men like Stephen, in the book of Acts, proclaiming the gospel. You have pastors like Timothy, called to be evangelists and proclaim the gospel. We have Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, the church to be built up and to be sharing the good news, discipling. And this makes perfect sense when we start telling people that Jesus Christ, as the King of the kingdom, commands all men everywhere to repent. The proclamation of the kingdom of God is good news for sinners who submit themselves to the king. And like the twelve, I think that we need to do this with some urgency. For one day the king will return to reveal his blessing and judgment. We need to recognize that there may be opposition along the way. And we ought not take that opposition personally, but we should be sobered and saddened by it. We should also pray that whatever opposition we face when we herald the kingdom, that it would not last. We should pray that sinners should come to repentance and come to receive the blessings of the king and his kingdom. Luke, you'll see there, he picks back up his reflections on the disciples' mission in verse 10. And he seamlessly ties it to the feeding of the 5,000. We're told the disciples, they had success on their mission by doing miraculous things, the things actually that Jesus had done just the chapter before. But when Jesus confronts them with their need to care for the crowd they suddenly forget the power and authority that had been entrusted to them. Now Luke has been hammering into our minds the fact that Jesus is God. He's been throwing this number 12 at us over and over and over again. The woman, chapter 8, who had been healed of the issue of bleeding for 12 years, the 12-year-old girl who had been raised with that, the 12 apostles, and now the 12 baskets full of bread left over. I wonder if you're picking up the imagery that Luke is putting down. 
God has gathered to himself 12 men. Like he gathered to himself the 12 tribes of Israel after the Exodus. Jesus leads these 12 men, now with the attending crowd, verse 11, out of the city and into a desolate place, verse 12. And didn't Yahweh lead the 12 tribes of Israel into the wilderness after the Exodus? And what did God do for those 12 tribes of Israel when they were hungry in the wilderness? We read about it earlier in the service in Exodus 16. God fed them from heaven. And what does Jesus do? He looks up to heaven. He prays a blessing over the measly five loaves and two fish. And he performs a miracle. And just like God provided bread from heaven in the wilderness, so Jesus provides bread from heaven in this wilderness. Now in one sense, while Jesus performs these miracles for the sake of the crowd gathered there for their hunger, in another sense, Jesus really performs this miracle for the twelve. He wants them to understand and recognize that he is God. They've each got a basket of food in their hands testifying to Jesus' divine power over creation. And that, after having fed 5,000 men to the full, Jesus really was establishing his kingdom, just as the twelve proclaimed. Jesus was constituting the eschatological Israel of God. He really was going to free his people from an oppressive and enslaving enemy typified by the devil's demons. Jesus really was going to make his people into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, just like God did in the book of Exodus, and like he promised to do in a full and final way through his messianic king. Given all that Jesus has done, and given all of the authority and power that he has imparted to the twelve apostles, isn't it most natural that Luke would turn and record the great confession concerning Jesus' identity? That's what happens next. Having raised the question, who is Jesus? And having been given really an implicit answer, we're now given the explicit answer to that question from the lips of Jesus' disciples. He is the Christ, Peter says. So let's turn and consider our second point. He is the Christ. Let's read verses 18 to 27. Luke 9, verses 18 to 27. Now it happened, that as he was praying alone, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here 
who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come. Well, this is an incredibly important event in the life and ministry of Jesus and his disciples. It is no coincidence that Jesus initiates this conversation with his disciples only after meeting with God the Father in prayer. Uh, Brothers and sisters, let me just once again encourage us to imitate our Savior. If Jesus needed to meet with God in prayer, how much more do we need to meet with our Father in prayer? And I appreciate Jesus' direct engagement with his disciples. He doesn't beat around the bush, does he? Uh, He asks his disciples, so so who do the crowds say that I am? I want to know. And they give the answer uh, that has been given previously, actually in verses 7 and 8. They give nearly the exact same language, like Herod, like the crowds, and those, uh, they're close, and yet still so far away from understanding who Jesus is. And then it's at this point that Jesus, he's not going to allow his disciples to stay at an arm's length from the question themselves. You know how we do that these days, right? Well, you know, no, so-and-so says that, and we just kind of step back and let, let that hang out there. But Jesus, he leans in and says, but guys, who do you, who do you say that I am? And that, of course, is the question that each one of us should be asking ourselves. Who is Jesus? It's not enough for you to let somebody else answer the question for you. You've got to answer that question. How would you have answered Jesus? Who do you say he is? Peter, in verse 20, he steps forward on behalf of the disciples and gives the perfect reply. The Christ of God. In other words, Peter says, you are God's promised Messiah. The word of Christ, the word Christ there is rooted in the Old Testament's expectation of God's anointed one, the one who would come, who would do God's will, who would rescue and rule over God's people. And it seems as though Peter, and I think that we can say the disciples as a whole, for he's answering on their behalf, and Jesus, you'll notice there, is responding to that answer as though it comes from the whole. It seems as though the disciples now identify Jesus as the Christ. And as he has done before, You'll notice in verse 21 that Jesus commands secrecy. His disciples understand that he's the Messiah, but they don't yet understand what kind of Messiah he will be. We have to remember the popular expectations about the Messiah for Jesus' contemporary audience. And this would have included Jesus' disciples. First century Jews thought that God's Messiah, the Christ, would ride into town and conquer Rome with a sword. But Jesus needed to teach everyone that while God's Messiah would ride into town, he wasn't coming to conquer Rome, but to conquer sin and death. He would be the one who actually faced the sword. And this is why Jesus commands silence, so that he does not go to the cross before the appointed time. Rome had a habit of crushing messianic movements. And still, while Jesus does not intend to go to the cross before his appointed time, he has to teach his disciples that he actually must go to the cross. Look at the language of necessity in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. You see that Jesus understands that four things must happen. Jesus must suffer, 
must be rejected, must be killed, and must be raised on the third day. There is no shortcut. There is no going around this path. This is the path that Jesus must pursue. For it is the path that was predicted and promised for God's Messiah in the Old Testament. We need only think of Isaiah chapter 53 and the suffering servant who was bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities to realize that Jesus must suffer and be killed. We need only think of Psalm 118 verse 22 where we read, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone to realize that Jesus actually must be rejected. With respect to the resurrection being raised, we need only think of Psalm 1610 where we're told that God would not let the body of his Messiah see corruption to realize that Jesus must be raised on the third day. Jesus needed to define what it meant to be the Christ according to the expectations of the Old Testament and not according to the expectations that had developed in the first century. Notice too in verse 22 how Jesus connects the conception and the concept of the Christ to the concept of the Son of Man. We've seen the Son of Man title appear in Luke's Gospel before, especially when we were studying Luke chapter 6. We reflected on the truth that this title comes from the prophetic apocalyptic book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14, we learn at least five things about the Son of Man. That He will come, He will have authority, He will have a people, that His people will serve Him, and that His kingdom shall have no end. And those are, are actually rather triumphant and glorious expectations for the Son of Man, aren't they? So do you see what Jesus is teaching His disciples? He's teaching His disciples the path of glory for the Son of Man goes through the cross. The path of glory goes through suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. This is what we need. Jesus is who we need. What the scriptures predicted he would do and what Jesus is here promising his disciples that he will do is precisely what we need in order to be saved. And it's precisely what he did. You see, we have all sinned against God and we stand in danger of facing his just and eternal punishment. And just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, we have set up our own rival kingdoms. Adam and Eve did that in the Garden of Eden when they decided to reject God's rule and to live under their own rule. God promised them that in that day that they rebelled against him, that they would die. And each one of us have followed in Adam and Eve's footsteps by rejecting God's rule and living under our own. And just like Adam and Eve, we deserve to face God's judgment and the eternal punishment that's due to our sin, which means that we need to be saved from that punishment and judgment. And God sent Jesus to live the life that we all should have lived, but haven't. Jesus, he was obedient to God. He was committed to the mission of salvation and the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And so he died on the cross, bearing the punishment for the sins of all of those who ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in him. And God, in accordance with the scriptures, raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that Jesus conquered the enemy that is even now pursuing us. If we turn from our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. And we will show 
that we truly see and recognize and rightly identify him as the Messiah, as the Christ of God. Have you confessed that Jesus is the Christ, that he is your Savior and Lord? Oh, friend, turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe that he came to suffer, be rejected, killed, and raised on the third day for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you want to know more about what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of Man and Savior, please come and find me at the, at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important And you can think about then this good news that Jesus is the Christ. Make Peter's confession your confession. Make the disciples' confession your confession. And become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we all need to recognize now is what Jesus says to disciples. Jesus, after declaring that the path of the Christ and the Son of Man is suffering and then glory... Jesus turns and tells his disciples, that is your path too. Your path is also suffering and then glory. That's basically what verses 23 to 27 are about. You cannot go around suffering to get to glory. There is no glory apart from suffering. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Look at what Jesus requires of those who follow him in verse 23. He requires self-denial, and this is the word that stuck out to me during my week, this past week, daily cross-bearing. What is Jesus asking for here? Self-denial is, uh, does not mean denying your every desire. Uh, if you denied your every desire, you would never eat, and you would have a very short life, and we would have no church. So when we talk of self-denial, we're not talking about some kind of form of strict asceticism, right? In fact, I think we need to understand self-denial and cross-bearing kind of in relation to one another. The cross was used by the Romans as an instrument of punishment and death. Again, we're not talking about a literal death here when Jesus says to take up your cross and follow him. For Jesus' disciples could not die and then die again on the next day. That's just not how death works. We're talking about here is a a metaphorical kind of dying, day after day. This is a daily identifying with Jesus in his death. Jesus is calling us to live in a manner that sacrificially honors God and serves others, just like he did in his death. Jesus is calling us to deny and say no to the sinful passions of this world and of our own flesh and of the devil. Jesus' three statements there in verses 24, 25, and 26 tell us how and why we should deny ourselves daily, take up our cross, and follow him. You see there, they all begin with that four statement. In trying to save your life, Jesus says, you're only going to lose it. And this shows us that you can prize your life above Jesus, but it is vain to do so because you will lose what you love most. If, however... Jesus teaches us, if you love Jesus the most, you will never be lost. Similarly, gaining the whole world gets you nothing in the end, which shows us that this world can tempt us with a passing glory. Gaining the world's praise and adoration, gaining the world itself, is like fool's gold. Holding on to the golden praise of the world in the end will reveal the foolish choices we've made. 
In verse 26, Jesus reveals for us that what he's been really saying all along has been related to him. Self-denial and daily cross-bearing really means identifying with Jesus and his words. Rather than sinking back, we must step forward, raise our hand, and say, I'm with Jesus. He is the Christ. He is my Lord and Savior. And I take his words, and I take him, and follow him. Go ahead and risk losing it all for Jesus. Risk your friendships. Risk your neighborhood status. Even your job in order to identify with Jesus Christ. I fear that sometimes we border on being ashamed of Jesus. Do you ever fear that for your own soul? Have you ever prayed, Lord, did did I not speak up because I'm ashamed of you? Brothers and sisters, are we ashamed of Jesus? Are we ashamed of his words? Are we ashamed of the teaching that he has given us through his divinely commissioned apostles? How do you know if you're not ashamed? Doesn't that have to be revealed through some kind of positive identification with Jesus? Maybe we should go ahead and risk it all if we're tempted to be ashamed of Jesus. Maybe we should raise our hands and say, as crazy as this may sound to you all, I'm with Jesus. I believe his words. I believe in him. I'm a follower of Jesus and you should be too. I mean, if we're really going to do the calculus, then let's do the calculus. And frankly, Jesus here invites us to do the calculus, doesn't he? He invites us to do the cost-benefit analysis. You can risk losing your job or you can lose your soul. You can risk losing your home or you can lose your eternal home in heaven. Do you see what Jesus says we're giving up here if we give him up to shame? In the words of J.C. Ryle, Jesus tells us that we're losing God and Christ and heaven and glory and happiness to all eternity. It is to be cast away forever, helpless and hopeless in hell. Jesus says to his disciples and he says to us, do you want eternal glory or eternal shame? The way to eternal life is through daily death. It is through daily trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, through recognizing that you cannot save yourself. It is through denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him on the path of suffering to glory. And I can promise you this, brothers and sisters in Christ. It is worth it. As you follow Jesus, do not be afraid of what you might lose, but look forward to what you will gain. When Jesus comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels, he will bid you to come into his kingdom and be with him. Jesus, you see, he has begun to talk a lot about death. And he has revealed to his disciples that he must die. He has revealed to them that they must put to death their flesh, take up their cross, 
and follow him. And all of this could lead his disciples to worry about their own lives. And so in Luke chapter 9, verse 27, Jesus says to them, But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Some of those gathered around Jesus and listening to his teaching would not die before they saw the kingdom come with power. This is offered as a word of reassurance. Jesus meant this as an encouragement to his listeners. He wanted to encourage them to take up the way of the Christ with the assurance that the power of the kingdom would soon arrive. And Luke takes this statement by Jesus and connects it to a display of the power of the kingdom in Jesus' transfiguration. It is in Jesus' transfiguration that the Father gives the second answer to the question, who is Jesus? And in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36, we learn that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And this is our third and final point. Jesus is the Son of the living God. Read verses 28 to 36 now. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were standing with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. About a week after Jesus' statement about some seeing the kingdom come in its power, Jesus, he heads up the mountain with three of his disciples. The sum standing there of Luke chapter 9, verse 27, seems to be referring to Peter, James, and John. And given all of the Exodus themes that we've seen so far in Luke 9, some of which I haven't even mentioned, uh, I would not be surprised if Luke means for us to have in mind Moses' journey up Mount Sinai to meet with God and talk with him in Exodus 24. And we should remember that Moses' face was transformed in one of his meetings with God. It was so bright that the people of Israel couldn't really look upon him, look at him in the face. He had to cover, he had to veil his face. In verse 29, we're told that Jesus' face is altered and his clothing, clothing became dazzling white. The other Gospels identify this as Jesus' transfiguration. And what that seems to me is that Peter, James, and John caught a glimpse of the glory of Christ that he would be clothed with at his second coming. Luke chapter 9, verse 27 clearly spoke of Christ's second coming. And here, these three disciples are given a glimpse of what it would look like for the kingdom of God to come in power and glory. One wonders what Moses and Elijah are doing there. Perhaps they stood as a testimony to Jesus, reminding the disciples that both the law and the prophets pointed toward Christ. 
Luke also tells us in verse 31 that they were talking about the departure, or literally the exodus, that Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It's not entirely clear what that departure exodus is referring to. It could simply be referring to Christ's ascension into heaven, his exodus from earth. But given that Jesus has been talking about his death and resurrection most recently, it seems best to understand Christ's exodus as referring to his departure from the grave, as he broke the chains of sin and death and walked out of the tomb, so freeing his people from slavery to sin. Christ's resurrection from the dead was a new exodus in which all of those who follow him will take part in. The next thing that happens in verse 32 gets back to Luke's concern about Jesus' identity. Peter and James and John suddenly become fully awake. Don't you know that the disciples are always like sleeping at the worst time? Uh, One wonders if, if Luke is trying to use this imagery of sleeping to clue us into the fact the disciples, maybe they're starting to wake up to the reality of who Jesus is. Peter, he recommends building three tabernacles, some Exodus imagery, or tents. Peter's attempting to honor Jesus and Elijah and Moses with this recommendation. But what Peter doesn't see is that Jesus, he's not on the same plane as Moses and Elijah. Peter does not recognize that this Messiah is the Son of God. A cloud You notice there, envelops them on the mountain just like a cloud enveloped Moses on the mountain when God revealed his law to the people of Israel. And now on this mountain, God reveals his son, the one who has kept the law, who is the fulfillment of the law and of the prophets. And in verse 35, God the Father reveals that Jesus was his son, his chosen one. Jesus is not just some prophet, he's not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. Jesus is the beloved Son of God, the one whom the Father had chosen from eternity past to accomplish His purposes of redemption. We can't fail to remember how this is brought out in Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where we read, As for me, and here the Father is speaking, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. According to the Father, what this means is that Jesus is to be listened to. He is His King who has authority to rule. This too was predicted by none other than the man standing on the mountain with Jesus, Moses. That Jesus is to be listened to. That's what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to Him You shall listen. The disciples, they're not to put forward their own ideas about what the Messiah's mission should look like. They're not to embrace the ideas of the first century Jews. Rather, they're to be committed to listening and learning from Jesus what his mission would be. And when the Father is done conveying his great love for his Son and his call for listening ears, the disciples, they're suddenly left alone with the one they're to listen to and follow. And this is where I'd like for us to conclude. Reflecting on on questions that God the Father's revelation about Jesus confronts us with. The question that this section of Luke's gospel forces us to ask ourselves is, do we see Jesus as God the Father sees Jesus? Do we see him as he's supposed to be seen? Do we see him with eyes of faith? 
Do we see and believe that he is indeed God's chosen one, the one who is inaugurating the kingdom of God, saving sinners and graciously welcoming them into God's kingdom? And the other question that we've got to ask ourselves is this. Are we, are we listening to Jesus? Have we heard his words and will we heed them? If we do see Jesus as he is supposed to be seen with eyes of faith, if we do hear Jesus as he's supposed to be heard, then our lives will take a self-denying, cross-bearing shape. Who is Jesus? Is he just another teacher? Is he just another prophet? Or is he the Christ? Is he the son of the living God? Have we rightly identified Jesus? Is it apparent through self-denial, daily cross-bearing, and following him? Let's pray together.